Hey guys, it's Antiquated Ideas with another uh, highway rant. So um, today we're in my very noisy 1986 uh, Nissan 300ZX. Uh, so if you're hearing the wind, which you probably are, um, that's why it's so fucking loud. But anyway, um, I'd been meaning to talk about this. I just haven't found the time to talk about it yet. Um, so. I figured now would be a great time because I'm in the car, you know, I'm able to, to really think and get my ideas out, no distractions, hopefully. Um, so what I wanted to talk about today was uh, really eco-nationalism and uh, the military. So, you know, eco-nationalism still isn't something with, with like a unified idea. Um, I think that the different people who believe in eco-nationalism, they really have some some common core beliefs. Um, and this, you know, the, the core belief here is definitely something that most of us can agree on, although the specifics that I'll get into um, maybe are not uh, something that everyone would agree on. So let's just dive in. And that's um, really talking about how the military should function. So, the core belief here is, is that eco-nationalism, a country that practices eco-nationalism, you know, or its leaders that practice eco-nationalism, should follow this idea of at least semi-isolationism. You know, so the, the country is producing all of its own goods, it's, it's completely self-sustainable, um, so when you, when you um, add that into the military, then what that comes out to is um, a policy of non-intervention, because what we need to do is, is take care of state security first, and... Uh, vehicle on shoulder ahead. Alright, thank you, Waze. Um, and you really need to, um, to take care of all of your problems at home before you're even going to start thinking about problems abroad. And now that's not to say that, that you uh, can't have um, military allies, especially economic allies, um, and that you you know you should be willing to protect them to uh, a certain degree. But that overall, um, you know, maybe I should say limited intervention instead of non-intervention. Um, and so the way that this would be restructured is um, a drastic reduction in the size of the standing army that we have today. You know, um, I really don't feel like there's a need to, to have uh, such a large standing military other than the fact that it's basically just trying to show off military prowess, um, which is not in itself a bad thing. However, when you look at the costs to upkeep a military so large, um, that's when you start to realize, oh shit, you know, maybe it would be better to reduce this at least by a third. Um, and now, uh, uh, supposedly, you know, with this vaccine mandate, um, at least the Marines are going to be uh, discharging about 5% of, of their current service members um, for, because they refuse to get the vaccine. So um, that's just an interesting point to add there. Um, but in general, I think that those reductions are a good thing. You know, what, what I think we should go towards is what we see in a lot of European militaries, 
where they're a defensive military with offensive capability. Um, and by that, I mean having more units that are highly specialized than uh, you know your regular infantry would be. Um, and have it be entirely volunteer based, which of course, you know, we are now, um, but I mean, get rid of conscription, you know, it should be entirely volunteer based. Um, and to that end, I think that, that volunteers, and that's what we found in pretty much all militaries, um, except for a, a select few, you know, is that having a volunteer force equates to a much more professional force. And that's something that, you know, even militaries like the British have been practicing since the early 1900s, uh, where conscription was a thing, but the highly elite forces were, were entirely uh, volunteer. So putting this into practice would look like, uh, like I said, a, a reduction of standing military service members um, and increasing the specialization of active members. Now, of course, nobody's going to be happy about being let go, um, but that's something that, that is just going to have to happen uh, to cut down on spending in terms of upkeep and also the ridiculous amount of spending that, that goes into, um, you know, research and production and, uh, you know, testing new things, uh, trials, I mean. So, uh, you know, all of these things have a ridiculous cost to them. Um, that, that the military, you know, they want to keep churning out newer and newer equipment, but obviously that comes at a cost. And now I can't tell you the, the number off the top of my head, um, what percent of the, the national budget is spent on the military, but I thought it was somewhere like 30%. I mean, that might be high, but whatever it is, it's still a very large number. Um, and so having these uh, specialized units, you know, this is what I was talking about with this uh, defensive military with offensive capabilities, is that if we do need to intervene in another country in a, a situation that comes up, then our specialized units are trained and equipped to be deployable, you know, anywhere in the world within a certain period of the time, which within a certain period of time, um, which is sort of the idea of the Marines as is, um, but that it should be on a much smaller basis. I mean, much, much smaller to the point where, you know, um, you look at, uh, like the commandos and the elite teams that get sent over to the Middle East by other countries, you know, and they're sending like 2000 men tops. Um, whereas we've been pouring much more than that into these countries and that's you know that's not even a, a getting close to the number of active service members we have just stateside or deployed throughout different bases in the world um, you know whether it's Japan Europe um, you know the I the Pacific Islands um, you know uh, wherever it is um, so I, I think that it's um, a much better idea to have this elite volunteer force, um, usually of like commando teams that, that goes and intervenes instead of, um, you know, getting, getting a, a large active fighting force involved. Um, and on top of that, I, I also think that, you know, if it is a larger scale intervention, 
you know, one of our allies is attacked and they need help, then the troops that should be deployed should be an entirely volunteer force, you know. Um, comprise them of relatively the same units or, or however it would be comprised, you know. Uh, like I said before, I'm an over, I'm a big picture person, not a detail person. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't have an idea of exactly how that would pan out, but I think that that's really the, the goal to aim for. But in general, is that we should not be intervening in countries, you know, without being provoked. So, like Afghanistan, I think, you know, we, we should have cut that much, much shorter if, if going there at all, you know, and I understand it's a bit of a retribution situation, and, um, you know, you have to take into mind 9-11 and, and um, how people felt about 9-11, not what actually happened on 9-11, because we all know that the government was, was fully aware, and that's its own controversy, but more so the fact that you know, the average American was outraged by it and, and was more than happy to do something about it. Um, so, but after that, you know, it's, it's really like, why do we still have troops deployed in the Middle East? Why do we still have troops in Syria and in Saudi Arabia? You know, this, it's, it's just to protect economic interests. And this idea of, you know, semi-isolationism and self-reliance is what really ties in here where we wouldn't need to to be and we shouldn't regardless but we wouldn't need to be putting troops overseas to protect economic interests if we were able to sustain ourselves um, within the borders of our own nation you know I mean we wouldn't need to be going out to um, other countries and invading them for their resources which is what we are doing you know we really are in an age of like neo-colonialism, um, just under the guise of, oh, well, it's the war on terror. I mean, it's really not, you know, because you look at what troops are doing and they're capturing weapons and the government sells them off. Uh, they're taking over poppy fields um, to get opium and sell it to pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, my opinion on opium too is that opium in and of itself is not a bad thing, but when it's sold to uh, pharmaceutical companies and turned into pills, yeah, it definitely becomes a bad thing. Um, and the fact that, you know, it's, it's been corporatized when it's a, it's a natural, you know, healing tool. Um, but on top of that, also the fact that, you know, we're invading countries for their oil. And I know, you know, there's a million memes about it, but that is reality. You know, that's the, that's why those memes exist. That's why the joke is, um, you know, oh, somebody has oil, then America will be there. Um, because it, it is kind of true. Um, at least in the Middle East it is. Uh, we haven't invaded China yet, so uh, let's hope that never happens. But this this whole, you know, like, oh, my dick is bigger than yours military attitude is, is not one that's very conducive to um, saving human lives uh, on either side. Um, and uh, same thing with nukes, you know. I, I truly think that we should be in a race to disarm but we're not, you know, we hold on to them for as long as, as the public will, will let the government. Um, and honestly, that's pretty long because the public doesn't give a fuck. So that's another huge concern. Um, and the, the whole military industrial complex, you know, is just, uh, that's, we, we are perpetually at war 
because this military industrial complex you know allows us to prop up our economy based on being at war and that's not something new you know countries have been doing that since forever um, but you look at you look at how many um, name brands that you would know you know are involved with this the military industrial complex and I don't just mean arms manufacturers um, I mean there are regular um, corporations that are involved with it you know I mean everything from DuPont to um, probably like Nabisco and you know I mean all these these corporations are involved in it so being at war you know gives contracts to these corporations from the government you know those government contracts are, are fucking juicy they're big big money so um, it, it keeps the economy afloat because what it's doing is it's it's giving people jobs and it's producing innovation you know um, and it's it's keeping the economy running by keeping these factories running um, and you know those factories could run regardless without without having to need military contracts so really that's that's my opinion summed up on it um, you know I, I have more points to talk about here um, but you know just off the top of my head I can't remember them and I'm also getting near to where I want to get off the highway but I want to say you know eco-nationalism is, is not a completely thought out and finalized idea yet it's not it's not a set in stone in one mile Use the right two oh. lanes to take exit 128, I know. County Road 840, Alaco Road, San Carlos Park, Southwest Florida International Airport. Well, now I just doxed myself, so now you know where I am. Thank you, Waze. Um, but, yeah, it's not completely set in stone. There are ideas that I really like, but they're, they're subject to change. Um, so I just want you guys to keep that in mind. But really, eco-nationalism is about the the uh, the idea of exploring what will actually work you know that that pragmatism you know being completely open transparent and honest with ourselves um and saying okay well this might work but anyway uh that's all i got for you today maybe i'll come back to it later i'll definitely talk about eco-nationalism again later so i hope you exit guys enjoyed right to 